If you're new with us this morning, uh, I haven't introduced myself yet. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I hope you do feel a welcome here, some sense of hospitality, family, and grace. Uh, We pray that this would be a warm and welcoming place, so I hope you've experienced that. Um, Just a a few announcements before we turn um, to to, uh, look at a passage in God's Word together. Uh, We always have our offering prayer Uh, But we don't pass uh, bags or a plate anymore because so many people give online. Uh, But giving's important. It's part of our life together. It's how we keep the lights on. It's how we support our many ministries here at Grace. And so you can give online um, at gracepca.com. There's also giving boxes uh, in the back. And so if you like to, to kind of give tangibly, know that that's available to you. Uh, if you are visiting with us and you'd like to know more about the church, if you'd like to connect with a pastor or find service opportunities, uh, there are connect cards in the back of the pews. Uh, you can also find uh, that same connect card or means of reaching out to us at our website. And so you can go to gracepca.com. You can download an app that we have that will give you uh, the newest stuff going on in the life of our community. Um, there's info about children's ministries on the back of your bulletin. And I know if you're a family with kids, man, coming to a new church for the first time and figuring out how everything works is so crazy. Just talk to one of us, pull Isaac aside, myself aside, anybody that looks like they know what they're doing and we'll try to, to lead you along. Just a couple of things that, uh, maybe there's not a lot of people who know what they're doing, look like they know what they're doing. Try to find somebody who looks like they know what they're doing. We have a ministry, uh, women's ministry event coming up tomorrow. We're calling it Pods and Pods, but there's uh, the whole thing is to gather together uh, as women to talk about faith and how it relates to our work. And so you can choose one of three faith and work related podcasts. You can find those online. You can listen, and then you just come and discuss it with other women. There's information, and you can still register for that at the events tab at gracepca.com. Um, I have a note here that Sunday morning volunteers are needed. We are looking for greeters and coffee brewers, very important people in the world, greeters and coffee brewers on Sunday morning, especially during our 1045 service when we return to two services. Boo! We don't want to go to two services, but we will because we need to. And so, um, volunteer, serve. What a great way to, to love this community and to meet people. Certainly as a greeter or coffee brewer, you can reach out to amy at gracepca.com. And then finally, our unity service is on Sunday, August 6th at 10 a.m. So we're a part of a denomination that has three other churches uh, in the city. And once a year, we gather to have a united service together. That service is not here. If you come August 6th, here, it will be you and the three bats that live within, within our, that will be it. And you don't want to do that. What you want to do is you want to go to College View Church, where we rented out that Sunday. And it's a wonderful service. You get to uh, a, connect, a sense of connection, uh, f- family love that's held between our three churches. So we invite you to do that. That's August 6th, 10 a.m. at College View Church. No worship at this location. Okay, that's enough announcements. Um, I always take a moment so that we can take a deep breath and kind of gather our scattered senses. 
so we can direct our attention to what God might be saying to us this morning. So let's take a moment. Gracious Heavenly Father, as you speak, as Paul speaks, as we hear his words and try to decipher together what you might be saying to us, I pray that our ears would be open to you. In so many ways, the passage that we uh, will hear this morning, it gets to the very heart of the gospel and the good news. And as I thought about it this week, I thought the great fear is us just being numb to the glorious good news of the gospel. And I've just been praying that our hearts would just be soft to receive it with joy and thanksgiving. And so my prayer for us this morning, Lord, is that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. We find ourselves continuing uh, in a series in the book of the New Testament book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 15 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them there. The scripture text will be on the screen. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. This is God's word. In him, meaning Christ, also you were circumcised. That's a good way to start a sermon text, you know, just right there. Let's go. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was thinking about this passage and meditating on the meaning of baptism. I kept thinking about the helpful analogy that's often made between baptism and a wedding ring. The ring is a beautiful and appropriate symbol of covenant love as two people are initiated into marriage. It is an unbroken ring symbolizing the nature of the commitment that someone just made. 
a token of commitment, a symbol of unending love. And my ring, that's right here, far from being a trinket, has been a significant part of my marriage. At times reminding me of the commitment I made to my beloved when it might be easy to break a promise or when keeping the promise has become hard. It's a symbol that marks me out in the world. He's taken. (laughs) Can't have him. (laughs) It says something to the world about to whom I belong. And it says something about someone else's commitment to me. That when the world leaves me behind and its hardships and broken loyalties hurt, hurt my heart, I'm reminded that there is still someone out there that loves me. In the end, my ring has encouraged me and challenged me, reminded me, and sustained my love. A token of commitment, a symbol of unending love. A powerful way to start a marriage. Now imagine this. What if after receiving the ring on one's wedding day in that ceremony, someone came along and added a second symbol to accompany it, a second sign and seal of their marriage, one that was very different in nature? Imagine that after exchanging rings, the couple began to exchange a literal ball and chain, You could imagine them bending down, attaching shackles to one another's feet, along with all that that may symbolize, welcome to your life of servitude. You thought you were free. (laughs) You will never leave. Not as encouraging, is it? And not only would that be a totally lame thing to have happen at your wedding, that sign and seal would contradict and negate the joy, power, and meaning of the first sign. Something very similar is happening at the church at Colossae. They were given a sign and seal, an initiation rite into faith. It was the gift of baptism, a sign and seal of their entrance into the Christian community, a sign and seal very similar to the wedding ring when you think about it. It says something about your commitment to God, vows that you take that are meant to be unbroken. It says something to the world about to whom you belong. You're no longer up for grabs. You belong to another. And it says something about someone's commitment to you. That when the world is lonely and hard, when the broken realities of faith, life, and even marriage make you feel so alone, you can know because you are baptized that there is someone in the world who loves you and calls out beloved. 
they had joyfully submitted themselves to the sign of baptism. But some folks were coming in afterwards and saying, there's another sign. There's another initiation rite. It's the old covenant Jewish rite of circumcision. Now, circumcision had its place in God's plan as a sign and symbol for God's people in the Old Testament. But it was an inappropriate sign for a New Testament believer. It was a sign that came with its own set of baggage, a promise to surrender again to all of the Old Testament regulations. Along with it came baggage to a a slavish, legalistic understanding of salvation where you have to earn what it means to be beloved. And that was totally incommensurate with the finished work of Christ. And so what Paul is saying in this passage is not only has Christ fulfilled this Old Testament symbol, but that what he has accomplished on the cross is so glorious so amazing and so extraordinary that to return to this symbol to describe it would diminish the finished work of Jesus. And so we're going to get into all of the weird stuff about circumcision. But we need to know that what Paul is trying to bring home is the glory of what's happened to us in the gospel. In this passage, he doesn't tell us to do anything. There is no warning, no directions, no instructions. He's simply telling us what's true so that we would glory in it. He begins by saying, let's just go verse by verse. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were circumcised. Now, you need to know that he's writing to a Gentile audience, folks who hadn't been circumcised, but have been told that they should be. And so when Paul says, no, you were circumcised, you might have them thinking, ah, I think I would have remembered that. When did that happen? And then he goes on to clear things up by saying, with a circumcision made without hands. Well, then how was it made? Well, he's not talking about a physical act done to a body, but an act of the spirit that sets apart a person's heart. And the Old Testament had pointed to a time when God would do a deep work in the heart of his rebellious people. Not just marking out their physical bodies, but by setting aside and addressing their hardness of their heart by removing a heart of stone and by giving them a heart of flesh, a heart that was alive to him in his ways. And Paul is claiming that that greater work, the circumcision of the heart, has been done. How? He goes on. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does putting off the body of the flesh mean? Well, the word flesh here is in Greek, sarx. And Paul uses it elsewhere to describe the backwards, broken, and primal dimensions of human beings. 
It's the part of us that's been away from God, that's bent towards that which gratifies our own desires and which is contrary to God. And Paul says that that part of you, the flesh, the sarks, it was cut off by the circumcision of Christ. By which I think he means not the circumcision that Christ received as a a Jewish boy when he was eight weeks old, but by the death that he died on the cross for our sins. There is an interesting parallel to this text earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 22. It speaks of Christ's work on the cross. And there Paul says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in him, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So this says you have put off your body of flesh, your sin, and it was dealt with when his body of flesh, his sacrifice on the cross was done in your place. Our hearts were circumcised, as it were, when we saw the circumcision of, the, of Christ, the cutting off of his life on the cross. Paul is saying that the work that Jesus performed on the cross is the ultimate and final circumcision, if you will. Because in circumcision, symbolically, a piece of the flesh was cut away to, to symbolize disobedience. But Christ's whole life was cut away. Not as a symbolic gesture, but as a very real sacrifice, an act of self-giving love. And Paul says that that part of you now, the flesh, the sarks, it was cut off, dealt with in Christ's circumcision so that you have been circumcised in the only way that really matters. And he's going to go on to say that the church now has a new symbol, baptism. In baptism, one symbolically goes underwater to symbolize participation in the death of Christ and are raised up from the water to symbolize that they have been raised with Christ. Just listen to him. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so here is Paul's talking about the sign which has superseded circumcision as people's entrance into the family of God. And he talks about baptism as a symbolic participation in Christ. First, in his death, saying you were buried with him in baptism. In other words, in baptism, we identify with Christ's death, so it is counted as our death, the death we deserve to die. He died for us. And just as we are participating in his death, we are also participating in his life. You were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him 
through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Alive to God. Hearts that are sensitive to him. Filled with hope. Living for what is good and right and true. And in the future, life eternal. Perhaps we die, but we will be raised by the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And I could wax eloquent about baptism, but I'm going to let Paul speak to us more, a master preacher who spells out the significance of this in his book to the Romans. And so let me read this to you at length. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dying, rising, living, and this faithful dying, rising life, the last thing I'll say about it is it's not something that we do alone. All of the yous in that passage are y'alls. It is something learned, embraced, and lived out in community. It's why baptism comes with the idea of membership. It's why we baptize the infants of believers. Faith is a gift from God that can be given at a very early age. But whenever that gift is given, faith is something that is cultivated and maintained in community. A quote from scholar N.T. Wright that I found lovely this week. He says, If we find Paul's definite statements about the effects of baptism hard to understand, it is probably because we have lost his vision of the church as the loving and welcoming family of God. The people who, by support, example, and teaching, enable one another to accept the gospel down to the depths of their being. And so to make real for themselves, among other things, the rich statements of Colossians 2.12. The candidate being placed into the family where Christ is loved and served is the best possible position to grow into mature faith, Christian faith in life. Baptism. Paul has taken us through this metaphor and symbolic meaning of baptism to the very heart of the gospel, but he's talked about it in kind of confusing terms, circumcision, dying and rising, 
And it's something that he wants to be so clear to us, the heart of the gospel, that he now takes us by the hand and leads us with very clear language so that we understand what has been accomplished for us at the cross. He goes on. And you, y'all, you guys, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, dead, spiritually insensitive, you prick a dead person and they don't respond. It's like when God pricks us throughout our lives and we don't respond. Dead to, as, as dead to spiritual truth as a human corpse is dead to being touched. That was our heart. That was our condition until something happens. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him. God made alive. The heart of the Christian faith to be alive to God, sensitive to his voice, to his promise, alive to his truth, alive to his love. How did that happen? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Is that past, present, or future tense? Past tense. How many of our trespasses? All. Let's just say that word. All. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demand. Canceling the record of debt. So this is just a record of everything that you've done wrong. Oh my. That's a very long list. If you've lived as long as Joel Ingdahl, that's a very long list. Indeed, miles long. Thousands and thousands of moments of lust, selfishness, hatred, harmful actions, failures. That's the record of debt that he's counted. How did he do that? How did he do that? It says by setting it aside. Literally taking it out of the midst. It's an unusual thing to say. In other words, we're to imagine like the courtroom of heaven and they're looking for the case against us. Like some folder with that piece of paper that records all of our sins, but nobody can find it. Where did it go? You can't find, there's no evidence against this person. The folder was here just a minute ago. It's taken out of our midst. And where is it gone? He nailed it. To the cross. Jesus took the record of debt and we're to imagine it like, a, like some scroll with very tiny print <laughs> in Jesus' hand. And as the nail is driven through Jesus' hand, it is driven through the record of debt and it stays on the cross. Now canceled forever. He has become a substitute for us, 
bearing the punishment for the record of debt in his own death, nailing it to the cross so that we could know forgiveness, so that our hearts could be alive to God and no longer dead. That's the gospel. And it says that the result of this is that it's not just an act of love, but it was an act of war on all of the evil demonic meanies that want to take your lunch money. The last thing he says is he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. So here he's talking about Satan and his minions. And this is some of Paul's best writing in this section. Paul subverts this Roman war imagery because when an emperor would conquer a foreign people, they would parade their enemies in this lavish lavish public procession, demonstrating their power over the dominated foe by leading the enemies through the city chained together, ultimately going to their ultimate destruction, but humiliated first before everyone. This is one of Paul's most punk rock metaphors because he's saying Jesus is leading the procession not of human soldiers, but a parade of celebration against his enemies, your enemies, my enemies, not humans, but powers and authorities in the spiritual realm. He's humiliated them and disarmed them. The devil can still cause a lot of problems. So how is, he, how is he disarmed? Two ways, and we're almost done. There is no more condemnation for us. Satan, if he's anything, is an accuser. And Satan can do a lot of damage to us physically, emotionally, relationally in this world. But he only has one way to damn us into eternal ruin. And that is through a valid accusation of our sins before God. And if he can do that, we're done for. If he can make our sins stick, it's over, we're doomed. But the point of 13 and 14 is that the record of debt that Satan could use to accuse is now gone. Canceled. Stripped out of his hands. He is disarmed. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? So that's the first way that he's been disarmed. No more condemnation. The second way, no more fear of death. No more fear of death. Sit. The powers, the rulers, the authorities were robbed and stripped of their power to hold us in slavery to the fear of death. And I get that straight from Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, an absolutely amazing and wonderful verse. And there the author of Hebrews just says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is we're human, And he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became human. That through death he might destroy, that is, cancel, abolish, the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through the fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. When Christ died in our place, he took the sting out of death because he took the sin out of death. He took the condemnation out of death. Summary. Are you ready? You were dead. And in your deadness, your fleshly way of life, which is the status quo, the broken cycles of sin and selfishness that is the legacy of mankind, that is where we were, but God made us alive. By cutting away the sinful flesh, he took away the horrible list of all the things that we've said and done, all the mistakes that we've ever made, and he nailed it to the cross where Jesus, the king of the universe, dealt with it once and for all. Christ has conquered and dominated the spiritual forces of evil run amok in creation, and he has led them in defeat through the village square of our lives, en route to their ultimate doom, the renewal of all things, where there will be no more evil, injustice, sin, suffering, or death ever again. So why do you need circumcision? <laughs> you want to circumcise you? You need more stuff? You need more than that? To feel loved. The old timers, man, they got it right. We don't, in their baptism liturgies, they would always say at the end, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. According to the Lutheran theologian Martin Marty, Lutherans are taught to begin each day by making the sign of the cross as a token of their baptism. In her book, Receiving the Day, Dorothy Bass explains the practice. She says, for all Christians, baptism embodies release from yesterday's sins, a receipt of tomorrow's promises, going under the water, the old self is buried in the death of Christ, rising from the water, the self is new, joined in the resurrection of Christ. Martin Luther charged each member of his community to regard baptism as the daily garment that we wear all the time, everywhere. Remember your baptism. The old timers would sometimes take like a, like a branch, would fill it with baptismal water and would like spray the congregation. Remember your baptism. I thought about taking like a super soaker and just... Remember your baptism. Because here we need something. to, And it's not saying remember the day. I can't. I was baptized as a child in a Methodist church in which I do not worship. He's not saying remember the details of that day. He's saying remember the God who sustained you and pursued you. Remember the promises and the truth here. And remember most of all that you are beloved. Before anyone in the world says anything about you, any day, you are beloved. That, rea- that voice of God, it seeps out of our souls so quickly. Days can bluster by in busyness and patience and distraction as we work to try to build our own blessedness. As we try to cut ourselves, striving for a self-made belovedness, receive grace, life, 
Grace is a mystery. It is the joyful scandal at the heart of the universe. And it is God's gift to you in Christ today. You need nothing else. He calls you beloved. Remember your baptism. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, that is a dense text filled with gospel truth. And my prayer for us throughout the week would be that somehow our hearts would be sensitive again to the wonder of the gospel, that you would restore to me and to these dear ones the joy of our salvation. The world can take away much from us, but if we know this truth about God's love for us, about the, his triumph over the only ones who can truly accuse us, then we can be strong no matter what the world takes away. So fill our hearts with gratitude for you. Let us know and let your word ring in our hearts today forgiven, beloved, mine, baptized. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.